0: Welcome to a new episode of our podcast. During the 1990s, Jody Williams founded and coordinated the international campaign to ban landmines. The efforts resulted in the signing of the Ottawa Treaty of 1997, for which she and the campaign were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. She is now chair of the Nobel Women's Initiative, an organization intended to magnify the visibility of women and work towards justice and equality. My name is Gaston, and I think that's enough of me talking, because she's here with us today. Hi. Hi there. How are you? Great. Um, We know you're a very busy woman, so uh, I think we're going to get straight to the the very important questions we have prepared for you today. How is the weather up there in Virginia?
1: It is hot and humid. How is the weather in Argentina? Uh,
0: It's pretty cold, actually. Uh, I'd say about 10 degrees Celsius.
1: Yeah, it's chilly.
0: Yeah, I guess that's what we call cold in Buenos Aires.
1: (laughs) Nah, but I love colder weather. I don't like the heat and the humidity.
0: Now, uh, we just gave a very google introduction to you. Um, how do you introduce yourself to an audience?
1: It depends on the audience, obviously. Um, I generally just say that I have been an activist for decades, that I um, had the privilege of helping create the international campaign to be in landmines, and that within five years we were successful and were able to force countries to do what they should have done anyway and ban anti-personnel landmines. For that, myself individually in the campaign, as you said, received the Peace Prize. And since 2006, I have been the chairwoman of the Nobel Women's Initiative.
0: Mm-hmm. What keeps you busy nowadays?
1: Well, one thing is, of course, the Nobel Women's Initiative. and it's um, five of us Nobel women, women who've received the Peace Prize, who have come together to use our influence and access to support the work of grassroots women in conflict zones who are trying to build and create and sustain peace with justice and equality. Um, That has been my primary focus. But in October of 2012, I became involved in creating the campaign to stop killer robots. And I work on that too. I also work on environmental issues. You know, there's so much to do in the world. There's not much spare time.
0: Uh, You just said you're now working on a campaign to ban the development of killer robots. Mm -hmm. Uh, To our audience that may not be um, familiarized with with this term, uh, these are warfare machines that do not need human input to decide when to strike. Right. Uh Why is it any worse that, a, that an algorithm decides when to fire a weapon instead of a, a human being?
1: Well, there are a number of reasons. The algorithm itself. I think sometimes people believe that, you know, that a computer, an algorithm, is more calm more, you know, doesn't need sleep, is able to decide properly who to kill, who to target and who to kill. But they forget that the algorithm was designed and used to program the machine by a human being. And we are all fallible. And it has been demonstrated that um, algorithms are are racially biased. that's just one teeny part. Another part for me is that um a person who is being targeted has no option of surrendering. Right? The machine looks at you or whatever it does, decides you are the terrorist and it kills you. Mm-hmm. When it's regular normal warfare as we know it, I could surrender. You know, I could put down my weapon and surrender to you. I cannot do that if a machine is killing me. With regard to the laws of war, I mean, it violates so many that it's mind-boggling. For me personally, the reason that I wanted to become involved in creating this effort is because I think it is disgusting. I think it is unethical and morally bankrupt, morally wrong, morally despicable that human beings think it's okay to give the life and death decision over a human being to a machine? Who thinks that's okay? Who came up with the idea? You know, I know it's a bunch of men working together in science, but it's insane to me. And there's no way to predict what these machines will do when they're set loose.
0: Uh, you know, at the same time that you were talking about this, uh, the debate is out there about threats to democracies from all around the world coming from social media. And now we're talking about killer robots. How can technology actually contribute to peace?
1: Um, when people ask me about killer robots and, and you know, am I a, a troglodyte? Am I some weirdo who thinks that we should live in the Stone Age? I don't necessarily have anything against technological advances, you know, whatever that means. I have a problem with just creating it and continuing without thinking of the implications of that creation. And people have said when asking me about what's so bad about a killer robot or what's, you know, what's so bad about a a robot, in general, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with a robot. For example, we have a, a robot that looks humanoid. And in f- big forest fires in California, you know, California burns all the time. You could give a wandering bots hoses to put out the fire. That's good. That's awesome. Then you don't have to worry about firefighters getting burned to death, as they often do. I have no problem with that. But you take that same robot, and you give it an AK-47, and set it loose. I have a hell of a problem with that. Because it will decide if you are a terrorist. You are a terrorist. And how does it decide that? They are not as smart as people think they are you know we work very closely with roboticists which i think is a difficult word roboticists Mm -hmm. and one of our paramount roboticists um, talks about how ignorant they are you know you can make a robot work properly if it is in a confined space where it knows what everything is going to be but you put robots on a battlefield, which is completely unpredictable, they fail time and time and time again. Um, Why would you want to allow machines to engage and decide your future? I don't. I think of, I often imagine, um, you know, a, a swarm of US fighter jets that are killer robots, no human being involved. Going to attack our forever enemy Russia. And Russia launches its own squadron of killer robot fighter jets. Nobody knows how that will interact until it happens. We have no idea, no way to predict. Mm -hmm. We don't know what their program is. They don't know what our program is. What's going to happen when they meet? There's hacking also you know the u.s pentagon for god's sake has been hacked it would probably not be all that difficult to you know hack killer robot programs and make them do well i think anything they do is bad make them do even more bad things um i just it just blows my mind that people want to pursue that without thinking about the future Without thinking about what it means for people, for people. Um, I also firmly believe that once they are launched, if they were launched and they are used in combat, they would be used against civilians. In, like, here in the US where we've had the protests against racism, et cetera, et cetera, um, Mr. Trump sent in US military, for God's sake. There were helicopters overflying protesters now i can only imagine that that individual would send in drones killer drones if he had the you know the possibility that is terrifying that is terrifying we need to stop it and it's not that there cannot be automation in warfare but it means that every sink for us in the campaign Every single decision about a human being who is going to be target and killed has to be made by a human being, not a machine. That's all we're trying to make happen. Not stop the machines necessarily, but make sure that if you are being targeted, I am looking at you and I can see that you really are a combatant on the opposite side that you're armed, that you're dangerous, and that it's okay to kill you. Not some child in a blown up city holding a stick. You no, know, a killer robot could decide that is some sort of weapon and blow it up. It's insane.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, for our first podcast, we had Daniel Leslie here with us. Uh, he's the, the founder of a digital innovation firm in New York City. And he said that before this pandemic, institutions were already in distress, you know, uh, global institutions. And COVID-19 would apply additional pressure on them. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know you have a very strong opinion about the United Nations. So we wanted to ask you uh, what you think are the, the biggest problems with its institutions.
1: I have no problem with international organizations. Okay, I believe in multilateralism. I don't believe in Mr. Trump's isolationism where he is constantly unsigning treaties that have to do with weapons, where he's unfunding WHO in the time of this pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. But the United Nations has never lived up to the promise of why it was created, you know, to prevent future war and hatred and this is for multiple reasons, you know, it, the way it's set up, and I am no expert on this, but different countries have quotas of the number of people that can work in the UN. Like if there are 10 U S people working in different departments, there can be five people from Egypt. I don't know the the proportion, but I'm sure the U S dominates along with the perm five you know, Russia, China, um, UK, France, who am I missing? Doesn't matter, the other one. Um, But the proportion, you know, the US always gets the World Bank, I think. I don't know how they divvied it up. But the way the world has changed in the last decades is not properly represented in the United Nations at all huge countries india if there's a security council yeah. india should be on it and others that we could think about but i'm not that's not where we're going that's my primary that's where i start um the nepotism the corruption you know nepotism like i am the head of x department and so i get give jobs to my second cousin and you know my wife's brother's whatever, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I think that's hideous. People should be hired because of their abilities and their expertise, not just because they're related to my brother-in-law, right? Um, The UN has no powers of enforcement itself, right? They had been talking about humanitarian intervention, Um, Couple decades ago, I mean, they still mention it time and time again. But like when they there were actions in Serbia, Croatia, as the former Yugoslavia was falling apart, and any one of the Perm Five can stop an operation, right? If we if we're all sitting there, let's say there are 192 representatives of countries in the UN, and Everybody except the PERM-5 want to intervene humanitarianly to stop slaughter. Any one of the PERM-5 can stop it. How does that represent the world? Um, many of the bodies in the UN also operate that way. That's one of the reasons why we ended up negotiating the Mine Ban Treaty outside the UN. We had been working for several years inside the UN in the Geneva office trying to negotiate a ban on landmines. And the big countries, you know, the major powers, which makes me want to throw up, the major powers kept blocking it, you know. And for the United States, it was not because they needed landmines, it was because they were furious that civil society, ordinary people like you and me, had come together and was able, were able to put enough pressure on governments to make them move toward a ban. So they blocked it. And then with a core of countries that believed the same way we did, we were able to go outside the UN, the treaty was negotiated in global meetings in different countries, and we succeeded. That's how it should work. You know, I could invite every country in the UN into my house. They wouldn't fit, but you know what I'm saying. I could invite them here to negotiate a treaty on killer robots. It doesn't matter. The physical space is not relevant. It's the contract, which is a treaty, which a treaty is, right? It's a contract between the countries that sign it to ban landmines, ban cluster bombs ban killer robots doesn't you know i could do it in my backyard it doesn't matter where you make the contract it's the fact that you make a contract you sign it your parliament or congress ratifies it and there you go you have a treaty so we were able to go out of the un and ignore the perm five and get it done and i'm you know that's part of the reason why i am not excited by deliberations in the United Nations right now Russia the United States the UK I'm not sure which the other major ones are are blocking real movement on killer robots for the same reason you know they want that weapon and they're going to get that weapon and they don't care if every other country in the world doesn't want to see it um, we may end up outside the UN again but if that's what it takes, so be it. But it does demonstrate that you know, the, the United Nations is not functioning in the way it was thought it would function after World War II. And in this increasingly connected world, and if we thought, if we chose to ignore it before COVID, we now know it's really, really, really connected, right? Um, we need international bodies. We need multilateral discussions that are real discussions in order to meet the challenges that are facing this world today. And the UN is not providing it.
0: You mentioned that you are the chairwoman of the Nobel Women's Initiative. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marie McGuire defined peace as inner joy. Rigoberta Menchu defined it as education, balance, uh, self-esteem. I, I suspect somebody might have beat me to this question, but what do you understand by peace?
1: When I hear um, Maraid and Rigoberta's versions, that is not the kind of peace that I think I'm thinking about when I'm asked, how do you define peace? What I understand from their answers is what is personal serenity? right, inner joy, all that other stuff. Um, That's terrific, but I do not have to have inner peace and joy in order to be an activist for sustainable peace in the world. For me, real peace is sustainable peace where the majority of resources are not given to war, are given to meeting the needs of the people in the countries in which they live, right? Human security, not national security. You know, in the US, a given in elections is, you know, if a candidate says, I'm for national security, well, that's cool. Nobody ever asks a candidate, what does that mean to you? Does that mean you support killer robots? Does that mean that you support 57% of the US budget going to the Pentagon when 5% goes to education and 5% goes to healthcare and other little bits do other little bits of the needs of the people of this country? It's insane. Nobody asks the questions um, and a lot of us are fighting Harder now, we always have fought, but are fighting harder in this pandemic upheaval of the world to get people to really think about what makes them secure. In this COVID crisis, killer robots would not make us secure, right? AK 47s don't make us secure. What would make us secure are healthcare systems that are stocked and ready to meet crises and pharmaceutical companies that are working for the betterment of humanity, not to make themselves and their stockholders rich. That's human security. That's what I support. That's what I believe in, not national security. National security is about maintaining the the structure of the state. It's keeping the state secure. It is, doesn't really care about me as long as I'm a, you know, quiet citizen and doesn't rock the boat, that's worthless.
0: And how optimistic are you about this, about the, the state of human security in the in the years to come?
1: Um, it depends on if people wake up and think about what real security is. You know, part of what many of us who are activists against militarism are hoping is that this COVID pandemic is demonstrating that all the weapons in the world cannot keep you safe from, you know, cyber attacks and blah, 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 all that modern stuff. That it is time to think about the needs of the people of your country. If everybody, and this to me is so basic that I can't believe that plant, you know, National security brilliant people are so stupid that they don't recognize that if you make sure that everybody has a basic income, everybody has a basic, decent house with running water and electricity, everybody gets an education, everybody has work that allows them to earn enough money in a dignified fashion to have a family, if those needs were met. Imagine what the world would be like. Just imagine. And the US's budget alone, to, you know, if they cut most of that defense budget, the money saved from killing people by US invasion could satisfy all of the, what are they called? SDGs of the UN, what are those things. The development goals, sustainable development goals. My country's military budget could take care of that. Imagine what the world would be like if we did that. That's what I think about. And that's what I work toward.
0: On a closing note, and uh, taking into account that a majority of the of the audience of this podcast and, and a majority of the of the people that are somehow involved with the SABF are um, young. Uh, proactive university students. I wanted to ask you what your message is to all those young people that, that want to make a difference.
1: Um, it's clear what bothers me, right? Which makes my fire burn and makes me have to take action. But, you know, to be an activist, there's nothing magical about it. You now, I, I get the feeling often when I speak that, people are afraid of the word activist. You might, I might be a communist, you know, or a socialist, my God. (laughs) Activism is nothing more than standing up and becoming involved with an organization, with people that share your view to change some small part of the world that needs changing. Right? Whether it's climate, which is not a small part, climate change, racism, sexism, ageism, whatever of the multitudinous issues really make you, like, so it it makes my um, righteous indignation, anger, but not anger like I'm mad at my sister, right? Anger at the injustice in the world, whatever the issue is that makes me unable to be quiet, That's what you should start working on. I also know that from experience that a lot of people believe that um, if they can't bring peace to the world, right? If I can't be the empress of the universe and make it peaceful overnight, Mm -hmm. there's no point in trying. Well, that's insane. That's absolutely insane. And that's what those in power want us to think that it is so overwhelming that nothing can be done to make things change for the better of everybody, even the people we do not like. If you pick one or two things that really, really you just can't stand it and you find organizations or if there isn't an organization you like, you create one. Working Alone, you will not make much of a difference. Working with others who share your vision, you can change the world. That, I I mean, I've lived through that, which is one of the many reasons I believe it's true.
0: That is very inspiring. Um, It has been a real pleasure having you here.
1: Fun talking to you.
0: Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. Make sure to join us on our next episode.